Hi everyone, I'm Jess. And I'm Catherine, and welcome to Across the Cline, the podcast where we explore the unusual ways we can meet in the middle. about courtship and dance and our guests for today are Ayala Berger and Ryan Boone. Would you two like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Hi, I'm Ayala. Um, I'm a biologist and an ornithologist at UCR. Um, I study hummingbird courtship display and I'm currently in the process of finishing up my PhD. I'm Ryan Boone. I am a Cambodian classical dancer and um, I have been dancing for more than 10 years now, I'm studying under Charya Burt, um, a Cambodian classical dance master based in Northern California, um, and also with um, some of the professors at the Royal University of Fine Arts, especially Nekru Penyom, uh, who teaches um, the ogre character, and uh, some interest in Cambodian folk music and folk art traditions. <laughs> well, thank you. We're super excited to have you. Um, so I guess the first question um, that comes to mind is just, how do you think dance and courtship relate? Like, the, like what do you think is the unifying thing primarily between them? Well, we were talking about this earlier, um, and I was just thinking about how... Um, I mean, dance is kind of a stylized language in Cambodian, in the Cambodian classical dance context. Um, dance is often talked about as a um, dance is like a ritual language. Um, classical dance is a ritual language, and the dancers are kind of interlocutors, mediums between the mundane and the divine. So you would have classical dancers perform certain dances to ask for rain or for peace or um, for peace from rain, you know, if there was a lot of flooding or something like that. Um, but in folk dance, um, there's this particular um, folk tradition called a yai, where it's like a man and a woman and they, they sing together. It's kind of like, kind of like a rap battle, really. Um, and you, so you have a band in the back and then they kind of, the man goes up, introduces himself, and then he calls up the woman and they just kind of, um, they just kind of make fun of each other and they, they riff off of that. And then it's like rhyming and then they'll dance and, um, and it's really funny. Um, and it's, but it's this, it's a performance, um, of courtship, you know, like they're like, uh, kind of the main theme is like wow you know they'll they'll have a riddle or something the man will pose a riddle to the woman or the woman will solve it or the woman will give a riddle to the man and then the man will solve the riddle and then at the end it's like wow you're so smart and and very clever at solving these riddles would you be my wife and then that's kind of how the the session ends it's like okay and then it's like okay i'll marry you and then goodbye now um so it's it's a performance. 
it's a it's a performative ritual of courtship. It's a, sorry, it's a performative that everybody can see. People in the village won't necessarily court each other in the same way, you know, like um, because it's kind of over the top slapstick type comedy. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's super interesting to think about the different um, qualities that that you would perform for your like let's say mate right if we're gonna start going into birds like in in this case ryan you're saying that like they're trying to show that they're funny and clever and that that's like a a trait that you would want in someone you're courting and to show someone that you're courting so it's interesting in that sense um how, what do you think um ayala are like what birds or what hummingbirds i guess specifically or other animals what do you think they're trying to show when they court to their partners what are they trying to show off yeah, that's the major question that is actually a source of like huge argument. Um, I almost view courtship as like a performance art, even if it's like animals doing it, maybe there's an adaptive function to it. Maybe there is like a rhyme or reason to what makes one male beautiful, right? But what strikes me a lot is, um, especially when you were talking about the ritualized uh, dance, it's almost like it's taking information from the environment sort of and turning into the to this like performance art to some degree right if there's rain there's like dance for rain if if i'm understanding it correctly feel free to correct me um i sort of view animals as doing that a lot whether they're like aware of it or not they're they're tuning whatever they're doing to environment and environmental conditions and um yeah whether there's meaning to a hummingbird's courtship display some scientists will say yes what that meaning is not sure but i i like to view it as like a performance art something that females hummingbirds they say they have this preference for something and and then the males evolve to have traits that fit into that preference and then suddenly you have birds that fly up 40 meters and dive 30 meters per second making noise with tail feathers with pretty feathers just this bizarre bizarre evolution of a trait interesting you're saying that you don't know whether there's meaning to that um do you want to like expand on that a little bit because it sounds like there's at least a purpose to it maybe or i don't know if that's is that a fair distinction that there's a purpose to their displays but maybe not a meaning that we can gather yeah like what what like what do you anticipate meaning to mean yeah so there is definitely a purpose and i guess meaning in my sense is like if there's information that is passed by traits that the male does. Um, so the purpose of the displays are, so hummingbirds um, are what we call, most hummingbird species are what we call a polygonous species where um, males will hold display territories often and entice females into their display arenas, essentially their stages. Um, and females will judge males based on their performance art or their courtship displays. Um, and all of the choices are in the, in the eyes of the female. So uh, most bird species, the females have to go into this 
um, copulation solicitation position. Um, so they're really in control of who they mate with. And so all the preferences we think are driven by females. Um, and so the purpose of these displays are for males to find, to entice females to allow them to mate with her um, in order to pass their genes on and have offspring to some degree. While they, um, in most hummingbird species, the males don't assist with raising young at all. So they can mate with as many females they want without having the burden of raising the chicks, whereas females do all the heavy lifting. Um, and so they have to be very particular. Um, question. <clears throat> um, so in the, the, the folk um, performance of the folk singing called Ayai that I, I talked about, the, the way that it works kind of makes me think about like a, like a bowerbird where like the stage is the male stage right and then he goes up and then he introduces himself and it's like okay this is you know me this is my name um hey everybody and then he calls the the lady singer up and then when the lady singer comes up all she does is kind of the first bit is just like her nagging him it's like oh you're like you're fat and you're too tall or too short and like your face is lopsided and and your 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 mo your nose is like uh, you have half of a nose and three eyeballs or something like that, um, and then and then they'll just kind of neg on each other um, before she asks him like a, a riddle and then he's supposed to solve the riddle. Um, are there any bird species? I, I mean, I, I said bower birds because it seems like the bower bird is the the most platonic ideal of like a male having a stage. But are there any contexts where, um, like, the female bird would kind of neg on the male? It's like, okay, well, your feathers aren't pretty enough, or your house is ugly, or, like, does that ever happen? I think bowerbirds is, like, a great example of that. I love that. <laughs> um, so I think of bowerbirds also as being this, like, crazy system where... Um, and bowerbirds actually, so, so bowerbirds are these birds in Australia and New Guinea that build what's called a bower, where it's like a display arena where it sticks and often they'll adorn the area with like colors that they like or plastics or whatever they find they'll put in front of their bower to entice females in. Um, and once the female comes to the arena, the males will stay on one side of the bower, the female on the other, and the male will dance and sing and actually often throw things at the female. Um, and research has shown that, um, so Gail Patricelli, the person who got me into studying birds and this field of beauty and animal um, communication sent in a robot female that will like change positions in response to the male. Um, and what she found was that uh, the female's behavior will actually change how intense the male is being. So essentially it is like this, can you respond um, to my fear of you almost? And it males that can manipulate how they're how intensely they're displaying. Maybe they'll throw a little less at the female if the female makes a cue. Well, actually, 
get more mating events. And so in some sense, it's this like, can you handle this like social interaction? Can you follow these social cues to some degree? What does the throwing mean, suggest? Like what, like how does the female respond to the throwing? Like, is it like Oprah? Like you get a car and you get a car and like, here's like all the, like, or like, what is that? Like, what does, what does it suggest? Or is it like, uh, uh, like WWE, like get out of here, you know, like throwing <laughs> chairs, like what's the throwing suggest? I, I think the Oprah example is pretty, pretty uh, brilliant. It's like, here, I have this flower, take this flower. Whereas the female is probably perceiving this to some degree, like, great, you can find things, but you're scaring me. They often get the startle response where they fly away. <laughs> so interesting, like this whole, um, just like this whole idea of like, in the performance art and in the bird courtship, like how bi-directional is it? Or like, you know, because I do think of a performance sometimes as like, one person displaying to win someone over like kind of like what you're saying with birds like in a lot of cases um but this like feedback is so interesting to me and i guess like how often is there feedback that changes the performance in dance versus you know in courtship and is that feedback like what is that serving as opposed to just performing and not knowing their interpretation as you perform you know like like the like the the level of the bilateral or like the how reciprocal kind of the relationship mm -hmm. is because yeah like you've been talking mostly about when you when both partners go up on stage and banter for each other right but yeah. is there a lot of dance where that's not the case where they're not interacting but there's just a performer that gets like assessed or and then what's the difference between those two like as far as the purpose of those in dance mm -hmm. I guess there's there's a scene um and so this is classical dance now I'm just kind of very it's just a whole universe of Cambodian dance I'm just bringing it all up but then there's a scene in um Cambodian classical dance that kind of so it's like the princess and her maiden her handmaidens in the in the forest or in the garden and they're just kind of picking flowers off the ground and then making garlands and like being like the epitome of like feminine beauty of like this like cloistered feminine virginal beauty <clears throat> like you're pretty and then you're putting these flowers together and like adorning yourself and you become even prettier full you know and um the prince um who's on this journey to to find a, a sword the princess's father has like he kind of goes into the palace and he was like gonna go and try to kill her dad but for his sword back it's like a, like a long and complicated story but like this is just like a like a in media res we're just in the scene so what happens is that like he sees the two of them in the garden and like he has like like he really has the hots for them you know, because they are just like performing like this feminine, the epitome of femininity and, and, and beauty. So what he does is he sends out his little, he has a pet monkey um, that is like a smart, like a pretty much a human 
in terms of like his ability to perceive and understand and communicate but so the monkey kind of turns into like a smaller like puts a disguise so that he becomes like a cute really cute monkey and then goes into this um group of maidens um and then one of the the princesses is like oh i love this monkey i want it as a pet can you know you my maidens go out and catch this monkey so i can have it as a pet and then one of her maidens goes and they catch the monkey she she goes into the forest to try to catch this monkey for her mistress um but it was actually a trick because um then the prince kind of captures the maiden it's like i love you be my wife but also do this task for me um to get the sword so i guess this scene functions as two things one responding to your question is like the level of reciprocity like in the scene is like we the viewer are viewing the princesses dancing and they're and then we the viewer are supposed to view them as like the ideal feminine beauty like our gaze is also the male gaze of the prince who looks at them and says wow amazing i want one of you to be my bride um and then it also functions as as a device in the story to move the narrative along but yeah there are there are moments this is more cambodian literature rather than dance um because the dance is just a manifestation of or a a performance version of of Cam cambodian literature but i think that that kind of answers your question right there 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 are instances where that happens and instead of like this kind of bilateral um relationship where like the male and the woman are just kind of nagging off of each other and then sharing the stage like that there are instances where it's like okay i'm performing performing and then yeah so it seems like a lot of what we're talking about in terms of dance and courtship so far is kind of like a one-to-one -one sort of performer and one individual viewing but in you know the human world a lot of times we're dancing for an audience of multiple individuals. So Ayala, can you talk about whether or not that occurs among animals themselves, whether um, sometimes you might have a displaying animal that's displaying not only to maybe its potential mate, but to others? Is there any sort of, sort of, I guess, voyeurism? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, often females are pretty cryptic, and so they're hard to see. Um, eavesdropping or you know picking up on other signals in the environment but I'm sure it happens a lot um, also in courtship sometimes the displays um, function in multiple ways so for example if a bird is like perched on the top of a tree singing not only are they enticing mates to come listen to them but they're also warning other males stay away this is my area if you come here we will have a conflict essentially so in that way yeah i think i think probably often there's more than one receiver what does the literature suggest are you familiar with any literature about interspecies appreciation or interspecies understanding of for example, like in a mocking in a suburban in suburban California, you have mockingbirds 
kind of everywhere. But then you also have like jays and um, other birds, sparrows and things that I don't know if sparrows make song, but like there are other songbirds that maybe make less complicated songs than mockingbirds. But like, how do they perceive song? Like, do they listen? Do they have any capacity to listen? Yeah, that's a great question. So mockingbirds and the fact that they're able to listen to other songs and replicate them, right? They mock them as a show of how fit they are, how how great they're able to learn and then reproduce songs, which is actually a difficult skill. Like you, the birds have to remember a template for something and then match it. Just like we learn how to speak a language, right? And so that that indicates that there is some awareness of what's going on in the environment, right? I'm sure a bird can hear and listen to other birds. Um, now, bird birds are smart, but they do have pretty small brains. Bird brain is not bird an brain. insult. Birds are very smart. <laughs> um, but but if we think of how much how many signals there are in the world, like how many noises there are, how many visual things to look at, it's probable that to some degree birds are filtering out other sounds and only paying attention to what they need to, right? So oftentimes they really need to pay attention to whether a predator is around. So maybe listening to a mockingbird make a sound isn't like feasible for them in that moment. Um, and we as humans do that quite a bit also. We filter out, I don't know if you've ever been in a noisy room and suddenly you hear your name unexplicably, that's called the cocktail effect. But to some degree, that's our brain able to like filter out sounds. Hmm. Like you talking about that makes me think about um, like, like a Bay Area mall like the Great Mall, for example, is a huge mall and it's full of different kinds of brown people and they're all speaking their own languages. Like some people are speaking, like you speak English when you go up to, you know, to ask for the price or whatever, but like amongst yourselves, like everybody's kind of speaking their own language. And then you kind of have these this filter for like only listening to the language that you want to communicate in. But then sometimes like if I'm, you know, at the mall with my mom or Costco, Costco with my mom. Like I'm not really listening to the other people speaking Spanish or Tamil or Malayali or Vietnamese. Um, well, maybe sometimes I'm looking out for Vietnamese, you know, but I'm like, whenever there's a, another Cambodian person, I'm like another Cambodian voice. I'm like, oh, do I know them? Should we hide? You know? Like, do I know them? Should I seek them out? Or is like, oh, do I do I not want to do? Should we hide? Should we go to the next aisle and like avoid this other Cambodian family? I get that a lot too. Also, the wait, did I say anything? I'm oh yeah. Not, but like, <laughs> did I say anything in this other language? That uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or like, should I should I hide? Should we hide our language? Like, should we not? Yeah. Same thing. Like when I'm in Cambodia, right? And then I'm I, sometimes I'm just like in the market or like with a bunch of tourists and then there's just a bunch of people from all around the world that are speaking you know, different languages. But when I catch a California accent or like, like some kind of surfer dude accent, I'm like, where are you from, bro? Like, I like, this is like, 
like make a beeline for this other person. I'm like, whoa, where are you from, bro? You know? So, I've yeah. definitely experienced that as well with Vietnamese. Like, I'll be walking around campus and I'll just hear someone speak Vietnamese and like my head just whips around like, who said that? <laughs> but um, so Ryan, you mentioned the concept of complexity um, a little a bit earlier. So I guess for both you and Ayala, what does complexity mean in your sort of area of knowledge, in this case, dance or courtship? And is it better necessarily to have a complex performance or is sometimes simplicity and minimalism better? Uh, if I could just uh, finish or finish up on the thought about like looking looking for people or avoiding people, like if I if if I'm at home, like sometimes I'm not necessarily trying to meet you know the other people. Like if I hear Cambodian, then I'm like, oh, maybe it's time for me to leave, you know. Like maybe I'm not trying to interact with like other Cambodians that I know because the Cambod like the Cambodian community is small, and inevitably we will know the people that are speaking that language in the Costco. But if I was like in Idaho or Iowa, where I'm not expecting there to be Cambodians, like that's when I'm like, oh, like who are these people? Like I gotta know them. So yeah, so I guess it, it's it's also context dependent. And I don't know if birds do that. Um, if they seek each other out in unfamiliar places, maybe conversations about like invasiveness or introduced species would um, play into that. But um, in terms of complexity and simplicity, I think it also depends on the audience. So um, Thailand and Cambodia are, they share a very similar court tradition. So the court, the royal court kind of go back and forth. Like the, the princes from Cambodia would go to Bangkok to study and then they would come back with like Thai wives and Thai musicians and like a, a retinue, like the, the people that surround them are, are Thai. So the, the traditions kind of come from a very similar place of like exchange. However, post-independence, the way that dance changed because of independence and like the like making very distinct um, geographic boundaries was the way that dance was utilized was different. Like once Cambodia became an independent country, then the Cambodian nationalists wanted to show the rest of the world that this is Cambodia that is separate from these surrounding countries, Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, for example. Um, so even though you have a pre-colonial tradition that shares the same things, so like there, like the story that I was talking to you about of like um, it's called a where the you know the with the monkey and the princes, princesses and the and the maidens in the garden, like Thailand also has that same scene, except it's sung in Thai. That the move, the gestures are a little bit different. But in Thailand, the audience for classical dance performance has always been domestic or has continued to mostly be domestic. So people that are familiar with the language, familiar with the, the performance, they're familiar with the genre, familiar with the story. So then the way that they present dance pieces, right, is like, is they take like maybe like a third of the story and then they just expand it. They just perform the whole thing and then it takes like three hours with intermission. However, in Cambodia, you would take the same story, you would perform it from start to finish in 40 minutes as part of like very summarized, just the, the highlights of the story. And then you would perform it with other kinds of other kinds of dance, like that kind of encompasses the whole of 
of um, Cambodian performing arts. You have like different kinds of music and stuff like that because the audience was mostly diplomatic. So like you have like the ambassadors from India or ambassadors from Indonesia, you know, or ambassadors from China trying to see what Cambodia is like. And the, 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 presenta the presentation is like, here's a, 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 um, an appetizer platter of, you know, every kind of Cambodian thing. And then when you would go tour to the to Europe to the United to the United States, it's kind of like here is a taste of everything, because because those audiences, the audiences, the diplomatic audiences in Cambodia, the audiences in Europe, the audiences in the United States, aren't familiar with the genre. They're not familiar with the the story. They're not familiar with the character archetypes um, within the genre. So thinking about it in terms of 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 depth is different because the way that they're kind of measuring it is, is different. Like one is like, here's a, a taste of all kinds of Cambodian culture as kind of a, um, a macrocosm approach. Whereas in Thailand is a, a microcosm approach, similar levels of complexity, I would say, but measured in different ways. I think it's so interesting how dance inevitably has like this historic component to it that evolves over time in like response and and probably also drives like nationalism to some degree and uh, yeah i think that's really amazing and to add that like historic component as and like the history associated to how it evolved as like a term of complexity is really a beautiful concept that i've never thought of before i really like that I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's what this podcast is for, right? It's like introducing. Yeah. Complexity new... is the bane of my existence. Like <laughs> the word complexity, I hate. I ha I use it. <laughs> I'm currently writing up one of my chapters and the paragraph I'm stuck with is complexity. What is a complex signal? I personally believe that um, really everything is amazingly complex when we stop and think about it. Like just our voices right now, right? Despite the language, forget that there's language involved in it. Just the act of making a sound. It's not just one sound, it's layers of sound. It's like uh, harmonic structures that interact together to create my unique voice or Ryan's unique voice, right? Um, in that incredibly complex, if you look on it, and uh, you can look at like visual representations of sound by mapping out the frequency by time. And if you look at human voice, it's just layers and layers of complexity. So are there any non-complex signals in the world is really one question. Um, I study two hummingbird species, um, Anna's hummingbirds, which have this really complex song. There I go using the word, has multiple phrases. It is by far the most elaborate, multiple components going on at once song of a bird that I've seen so far. Um, and then the other species I study is Costa's hummingbird that has just a sound that's, it has harmonic stacks in it, but they're very clean. And it just goes like, woo, but like really, really high in frequency, really high in pitch. Um, 
And that looks simple, but but it really it really isn't, right? If you like zoom in on this sound, there's like all this up and downs of the sound. It's not pure. It's even that is complex, although I call it simple. So. Yeah, like like in language, um, like tonal languages often are unable to make as many consonant sounds um, or consonant cluster sounds or, or vowel consonant cluster sounds. Um, so they you adjust for that to allow for the complexity of language, I guess, by having tones. Um, whereas like other languages where you can make you, yeah, one is just very wide. You know, you, you just make all of these consonant sounds and consonant cluster sounds, and then you have subtlety kind of um, along the x-axis, whereas like maybe tonal languages kind of have a narrower um, space or narrower consonant sounds, and then you just kind of accommodate for complexity, I guess, with tones. Like in Cantonese, there are nine tones. I can't hear. I can't under. I can't hear all of them. But Cantonese people do. They hear all of them. Yeah, it's like it bring, I just feel like it brings up the question of like why become why be more elaborate and why be more complex like if simple is easy in both cases like it it almost feels like there's a reason that it becomes more elaborate and maybe like with language that is because you all of a sudden need to communicate new and more complex ideas so you need more nuanced sounds to have the ability to communicate more ideas or something like that. Um, but that's just like a guess at why, like, or, uh, like the reason that you would have to get more complex despite it being more effort. Like, so what do you, what do you all think about that idea of like, why become more complex? Yeah, I definitely think that to some degree, complexity allows for, well, to every degree, complexity allows for individual variation, right? So in that sense, there is information that goes out, right? You can tell individuals apart based on the sounds or the visuals that they have. And so complexity drives variation. And variation is both um, in the sender, but also receivers have variation in their preferences, right? The fact that no two people hear the same way is something that I wake up every morning thinking about. <laughs> I just, I think it's incredible. It's like both our like physical perceptive abilities, our cognitive past histories, what we've experienced in the past, um, sounds we grew up with when we were young, all of this like comes into how we experience our world and animals are no different. Um, there's this great paper I think from the 80s by Von Wuxel. Oh, I have to double check on the name, but essentially it calls into the idea of a belt of an animal. And that's that every animal has the sensory world of their own. Um, and I, I would extend that to not just every animal has their sensory world of their own, you know, different species can see different levels, like birds can see in the UV spectrum can hear differently, but I would extend this to individuals have their own 
sensory worlds, right? So just like two humans don't hear the same thing, even if they get the same exact signal, I don't think two birds do either. I think the preferences are different to some degree. I mean, obviously there's some unifying preference that drives the evolution of like male signals to look how they do. But individually, I'm sure there's variation on both ends. And maybe that conveys information that relates to this game of more complexity and more complexity. And then you end up with a bowerbird that's dancing, bringing gifts, throwing things, just changing their pupils, just a wild system. I mean, hummingbirds are pretty wild too. Ryan, you're muted. <laughs> I don't know if you're talking. <laughs> I'm just thinking for myself. I'm just like, the necessity of complexity. I don't know how to answer that question. Well, I, I mean, I do think that what it reminded me of uh, in your case, Ryan, was just like, you know, you talk about all these like local like differences, like because, you know, um, Ayala was just talking about how it drives diversity and variation. And in evolution, for example, like you need variation to evolve and to separate into different things um, or to be differentially preferred. Right. Like, so do you think that maybe like this like the complexity is what differentiates different areas and different cultures and how they do their dance or do you think that that's not necessarily like important like the, the complexity to differentiate different cultures i think it's very important um in terms of like showing difference um but then y'all you were also saying about like it's not just about the performer or the person like present the source of the the complexity but also the receiver of the complexity like not just the performer but also the audience like i think <clears throat> like costume is one thing um like the way that they're dressed um is a is maybe an easy visual clue for someone that cued for someone that doesn't um that isn't a a native a, appreciator you know a native person to, that understands um, the art form between Thailand and Cambodia, for example. So if we were to put them in like black leotards, you know, where like they're abstracted from, you know, like black leotard is kind of a, a, a white European construct, but like when you put it on, it abstracts you from your culture. Um, like, the way that Cambodians dress and the way that Thai people dress in a traditional dance context are different. So if you were to stick them in a, a black leotard to like strip them of that, Thai people and Cambodian people sometimes look similar. Um, <clears throat> but when you start doing the movement, if this person had just taken one class, let's say, let's say, let's say that someone that has never seen Cambodian classical dance before, um, They've never seen it. They don't do it. They use, put them in a black leotard and you send them to a dance class. Um, that person, if they were to dance and then I were to look at it, like if they weren't necessarily like a skillful dancer, like just some random person off the street that has never danced before and like doesn't really have an understanding of movement um, or like the like nuances of movement. And then that person were to dance for me to look at. Like if they went through all of the steps, I might not be able to tell if 
that person was trained by a Thai person or a Cambodian person. Does my example make sense? Like, because at the, what I'm trying to say is like, at the most basic, unnuanced level, there is like significant overlap between the two traditions. Um, so like, let's say that you have a, like a little kid, right? A little kid that has just been introduced to dance. I wouldn't necessarily be able to tell if the kid was Cambodian or Thai, um, because we share we share the same music, the same um, kind of the most fundamental way that we move is very similar. The way that we use our hands, the way that we use um, our body, our face, our you know, is, can be very similar. So for for a kid, it can like I wouldn't be able to tell if if it was like didn't have um spoken language if there was no lyrics to it and then the music was like also this like platonic ideal of like that exists between the two i wouldn't be able to tell however like when you have a very sophisticated practitioners performing like of course i could tell you stick them in a black leotard um to the same kind of basic like if it was just a metronome right that doesn't have any kind of um that doesn't have anything i would be able to tell immediately like if they were thai or cambodian so complexity is definitely a marker of difference um which i guess is just <laughs> been a yeah but i've just given a very long way to say that yes complexity is is definitely a big marker of difference yeah it's interesting it adds like this geographic component to it that's so important um yeah and it just proves how like complexity it's also like the costumes and the music but just the dance itself when it's the same exact tempo it's so complex that interpretations and how you're taught to interpret things or movements add so much complexity nothing is simple yeah so like so like um for ASEAN, right, is the um, Association of Southeast Asian Countries, Southeast Asian Nations, sorry. So it's like Thailand, Laos, Brunei, Indonesia, um, Vietnam, um, Myanmar, Brunei, Malaysia, Singapore. They have these conferences where they kind of show similar similarities in the culture, right? And they have performances, but then they also have like a dance party where you have similar dance rhythms. So Thailand and Laos and Cambodia have a similar kind of folk dance rhythm of like three, four, three, four, three, four, and you dance in a circle. And Im immediately you can tell when, when the diplomats get up to start dancing, they all dance in a circle and they kind of raise their arms in the same way. But the way they use their body, you're like, okay, this person is Thai, this person is Lao, this person is Cambodian. Like it, they're very, even at that, like that, very basic level is yeah you you see it it's so interesting how it required i really like this whole view of it requiring the viewer and their complexity as well like i was just talking to my roommate about this idea of like mutually constitutive interactions where things just aren't like there is no thing in and of itself besides 
the interaction of those two things. Like, so if the interaction of the performer and the audience creates a meaning in that thing, in the dance. And so it's interesting how you take it out of context. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, on its own, you know, like dancing in, in your costumes wouldn't mean anything to an audience that's not familiar with the culture. Like, so it, it derives meaning from that interaction, you know, so I think that is really interesting. Yeah, so There's also, of, oh, or, sorry. go ahead, Ryan. <laughs> I was also, um, like, you also have this problem, the, this problem happening in the diaspora, I'll call it a problem, because dance is also a sacred language, like classical dance is the sacred language. So there, there's like in traditional pedagogy, like the way that you learned it was you kind of like, there were certain things that regular people couldn't learn. Like when you go into the traditional school, not everybody is able to learn those specific choreographies because it's reserved for someone who is kind of the perfect build and they have the, the perfect face or they have the perfect, um, uh, their their rhythm is really good or something like that because it's just a high such a high um, it requires a lot of skill um, but so those are the people that you get to see on tour and in performance like those really high level performers so when you in the diaspora you have people that want to learn these very high level important choreographies um, but they don't have that same context of like being in the dance school and like, hey, not everybody can dance, you know, not everybody can be the white swan. You know, maybe to use a ballet example, it's like, okay, everybody knows about the white swan and the white swan's dance. And then everybody wants to dance it, but then that doesn't necessarily mean that you can dance it. Because if you, if, especially in a, a place where, in a, in a context where it's very strict, you know, like you, you, you have to move in this way, and if you don't move that certain way, then it's not right. Um, like in Cambodian classical dance, like there are some dances that you know are seen over and over and over and over, but it's by the most beautiful people that have the perfect um, musicality. Um, and then when you try, and then when people in the diaspora want to learn it, it's like, oh, this is the dance that I want to learn then the, the, the teachers are like, oh, how do I, like, how do I, how do I function as a gatekeeper? Like, should I gatekeep? Should I not gatekeep? Like, how does, like, that is also like a, because there's no, there's no um, context for it. You know, there's no paratext, I guess, to, to use a, a, a term from critical theory. Uh, like there's no paratext to accompany the text in the diaspora. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting, like kind of that push and pull between sort of how do you preserve these traditions, um, especially when, uh, you know, you have people who are interested, but they might not be at that skill set level yet. And that kind of makes me wonder, like, how is like Cambodian dance and all these other dances you've been talking about, Ryan, is going to potentially like evolve and change over time and it sounds like there's a lot of um similarities between other south asian uh, southeast asian dances with cambodian dances and um all that and um so in biology we have the concept of convergent evolution versus divergent evolution so where convergent evolution is when uh, species evolve similar traits due to being in similar environments but they're not 
um, from the same ancestor, while divergent evolution, you have two species arising from a common ancestor. And so I was wondering how like dance has evolved over time and how you think dance is going to evolve into the future, especially in the context of diaspora. And similar, similarly, I know I all you study variation in song dialects in hummingbirds. So that's definitely some interesting evolution happening right now in uh, the species that you study as well. So um, <clears throat> just thinking about Darwin's finches, right? Like uh, you, you have like this original finch that arrives in the islands and then they get stuck in the, the islands and then they all kind of evolve in their own ways. They all diverge from there. Um, so I, the, the, the evolution of dance converged when the two courts of Bangkok and the, the court in Cambodia, it, it kind of changed places a couple of times. But then the court was always in, in modern day Thailand, was always in Bangkok. Um, and then you also have the court in um, Luang Prabang in Laos that shared a similar courtly tradition, like Brahmanical and Buddhist and the, the rituals for consecration and the way that the rulers viewed themselves as powerful people, you know, they, the, the, the regalia, I guess, which would include like a harem, not one, not, they weren't all of the king's wives, but they were part of the king's household, you know, the maids and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you have soldiers and you have land and you have tributes, tribute states and so even though they're all different ethnically different like the Thai or T-H-A-I are a Thai T-A-I they are Thai that's their ethnic group Cambodia is um, Khmer K-H-M-E-R and then in Laos or the lowland Lao or Lao Lum they're like their own they're also Thai but it, they all speak different languages, and but they share this similar cultural context where they, it would be bleeding, you know. Alliances would be forged between the different kingdoms and the different tribute states. And it's just kind of this interconnected um, web that shares the tradition. So even though they're all come from different places, the, the evolution of a courtly tradition of dance is a part, uh, which dance is a part kind of converged. You share the same epics, you share the same music, you kind of move in similar ways. You, they're presented at similar times throughout the year. Um, so you have that convergence. But then once you have national boundaries that kind of break up um, these different countries from each other, then you have a divergence. So in Laos, you know, in the, in the 50s, you had some classical Lao dances that exist in Thailand and exist in Cambodia. Like you have these scenes from epics or from stories that are the same. But then once the, you have the national boundaries drawn up, then the Lao people are like, what is Lao? Like, let's kind of distill the culture that we have and then find like some kind of Lao essence. Or in Cambodia, it's like, well, let, like what is a Cambodian essence? So you have... So in Cambodia, you had this 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 national dance, this very nationalistic dance called the Apsara dance, which used the lexicon of the dance that was at the time that was like that had been kind of been a a, a mix of styles from Thailand and Laos and Cambodia, and using this like music that originally came from Indonesia, 
Um, but then you took the costumes from Angkor, which like the Cambodian nationalists wanted to make this direct connection. So they used this this lexicon, um, contemporary lexicon, to try to draw a line a thousand years in the past. So that then that's and then that was where the divergence happened. Like once you have these boundaries, once they become islands, isolated population, like you try to isolate from each other, then you have this divergence. And then in Thailand, you also have a, it going in a different direction, and in Laos, you have it in a different direction. Um, so, yeah. So once you have national boundaries, national borders, you you have a, a divergence again. And weirdly enough, that's exactly how birds work, <laughs> or many animals work. Uh, I guess even us humans, like we have dialects when we're in our distinct areas, and there's not much mixing in the areas. So, so yeah, one of the like mechanisms for when dialects or different um, song variations that occur on like population levels occur is when there is movement. Um, is one mechanism for it. So if like a bird migrates or disperses, that's a way of like dialects to evolve. But it can also just be this really random event where suddenly there's a male that goes to this one area or stays in the area where it is. This male just sings a weird song. And for whatever reason, females like this song. And so the offspring then learn the song. Hummingbirds are weird in that the males don't raise the young. So who the young learn their songs from is a big question, but likely it's, it's other neighbors in the area. Um, so it can be just this random event that happens by like essentially cultural evolution or, or like drift to some degree. So back uh, to the, oh, sorry. No, go ahead for it. Uh, my question was like, well, if if learning song um, is a crucial part of the, um, the development of the life cycle of a hummingbird, um, it is a male activity, but if, if the male isn't present, um, it would like necessarily require like neighboring or males in the vicinity. So how densely do hummingbirds nest they don't seem to be communal you know they don't seem to be building like apartment complexes like some weaver birds um so how like like what is that what is that like and they're also so territorial so how do you learn how do they learn in such a territorial um fatherless um environment yeah, all great questions. It's a tough life out there to be a hummingbird, especially a female hummingbird. They just, wow, they get harassed all the time. Uh, but it's also hard being a juvenile hummingbird. Um, so juvenile, juvenile males, you'll often see um, being displayed to by adult males. Um, whether the males are thinking this juvenile is a female because they look pretty similar. Um, is a possibility or whether it's more of like this territorial thing, like just get out of here is another possibility. Um, yeah, whether hummingbirds nest together, most don't. Um, I, 
costas I see nesting together. And one theory is that it's some sort of like, we'll all protect against other males stealing our flowers, but no one's tested it. So it's largely unknown. But yeah, who, who, who are they learning to? When do they hear other songs? They fly, so it, the possibilities are endless, really. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like, um, like a prototype for some like come coming of age type epics, kind of like an Oedipal thing where it's like, a, I learn from my dad and then I kill him with what I've learned from him. You know, like he tries to kill me, but then I kill him. You know, like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, does that happen? Like the usurping, like how does that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't know if that happens, but <laughs> the degree of like how much a geographic signature matters is unclear also. And so this is like something the next age of scientists should take all of my sound recordings and play them out for for males near each other and see if they respond differently to see if there's like a function to these geographic differences, right? Whether they get, they get more aggressive. They're like, oh, that sounds like my dad. Yeah, ah! you're from San Francisco? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's where I'm from. I hate it. My dad hated me. Oh my gosh. Well, I feel like we could just keep talking forever. Like there's still a bunch of questions I want to like dive deeper into, but it is coming up on an hour, believe it or not. Um, so I kind of just want to end with like, did this podcast work? What did you learn from each other that maybe will change how you see your disciplines now? <laughs> is there anything? Yeah, I had a really great time. Thank you for having me. Um, Ryan, I learned so much from you. Um, I think I'm going to go back and rethink how I think of complexity. You know, I've been thinking of my signals as this multimodal, so across different sensory modalities, um, when just each signal on their own has so much complexity, right? Just the dive itself. What are we missing about that complexity? What individual information are, are we like just glossing over? Um, I think I'm definitely going to think about geographic variation in terms of this learned thing that doesn't also have to be geographically distinct, right? And I sort of intuitively knew this from like my practice of playing cello and learning the same Bach from like a German teacher and a Russian teacher all in the same city. But, but uh, look, hearing about dance and, and the complexity of like this, this conference of dancing um, just like inspires me to think more about it and in a different way. So I'm really excited and thank you so much. I, I really, I appreciate learning more about birds. It's definitely made me think like, you know, is it, am I playing too much of God if I put like two hummingbird feeders together with some bird seed feeders, like just to try to have like a convergence of all of these birds together. 
like would like is that irresponsible of me <laughs> it makes me i like i appreciate hummingbirds so much more now like i didn't i didn't think that it never occurred to me that that um hummingbirds didn't weren't um raised by males or like males didn't play a part in, in the upbringing of, of hummingbirds and i mean like pigeons like that doesn't really happen either but then pigeons aren't really territorial um in the same way that hummingbirds are so that's definitely right pigeons aren't territorial they just kind of are just they just live with each other yeah so um, they do have territories um as in like ne their own nests and stuff then they are biparental so mom and dad do end up raising the chicks together oh. but they're quite social animals as you can see walking out probably to any yeah. city square I, well okay i guess that was just a, a poor assumption on my part because they're <laughs> like pigeons are just so bad at making nests yeah and you know <laughs> i thought that like it didn't occur to them that a two-parent household would you know be somehow efficacious but anyway now yeah now it occurs to like maybe hummingbirds wouldn't be so territorial if they had a like a comforting male figure in their life <laughs> but i've yeah i've learned a lot this is um really stimulating and eye-opening to the 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 similarities between humans and birds and other animals, not so different from each other. And just this driver for beauty and complexity and like both the reception of it and the production of it is just so inspiring. Yeah, and on that beautiful note, um, I'd like to thank both Ryan and Ayala for joining us today. And um, I'm glad to hear that you two had a great time. I personally had a great time listening to in on this conversation. <laughs> and I think you did too, right, Jess? Oh yeah, I've learned a lot and now think about things differently too. <laughs> so mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Also, I like totally see instruments on both of your backgrounds and I'm like totally want the two of you to play something <laughs> together. <laughs> Not now, but <laughs> one day, that'd be yes. fun. You're on an instrument right now. It is, this, it, I use it as the desk. <laughs> Wait, what are we on yeah. right now? Uh, you're on a you're on a xylophone. <laughs> Your music to play out. <laughs> That was a really fun podcast episode. I felt like, um, you know, initially I saw them as so different and now I can't see them as different. I just see everything being so similar. Um, I, I especially thought that the part on variation and complexity and kind of what drives that was interesting in both of the systems. Um, it seemed like, it seemed like, my thought in general with evolution and birds and how they become different is through 
like geographic isolation, right? You know, like being physically separate and then just randomly becoming different because they're not mixing genes and stuff anymore. I thought that that would be the case uh, with these like national boundaries as well um, in driving differences. Not so, not so intentional, right? Like not like trying to become different from each other or maybe that's not necessarily like what they were trying to do what do you think like Uh, I don't know because I think Ryan was talking about kind of how sort of all these different national camps who while similar are kind of I guess over time like highlighted or used to highlight how these cultures are different and unique from each other Mm -hmm. and so I guess similarly with birds as well it's not always a geographic difference i mean here in southern california we have you know annas and costas which a lot um Mm -hmm. ayala studies uh but several other species as well so Mm -hmm. i think for them their different courtship displays is also how each individual identifies themselves as a member of the species Mm -hmm. and try to find mates that are also of the same species Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it 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 is interesting because it almost feels like they need to put their differences on display. <laughs> it uh, it almost feels like they need to put their differences on display um to basically I guess it, in both cases it seems like there is a need to display their identity and continue like keeping their identity alive so finding a way to represent their identity first right whether it's through a dance and to have some Cambodianness to a dance right um some essence that that does like show the viewer that they are Cambodian um but also like crafted because they want to preserve that identity and same with birds like they're trying to show their species that they are part of the same species, all in efforts to preserve that identity, right? So that they can mate and pass on their genes and preserve this species. So in some sense, both are like immortalizing an identity um, through putting it on display and finding ways to be different from other things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's so cool kind of seeing how like preserving it but you know over time there is that evolution of how um these dances or these courtship displays change either due to i guess in the case of dance as ryan points out diaspora and as ayala points out with just birds somehow singing slightly different from their dads or their grandfathers yeah yeah and that point about um you know, not noticing these differences, like for what Ryan said, not noticing these differences until you're at a high enough level, like in dance to see them. Um, that does remind me of just like when in birds or in other species, like you, you uh, can't recognize these differences unless you're in the species probably. And then these differences are probably very, very profound because you are tuned to see them now. Like once you're a part of the species, just like how we're tuned to only hear certain things or see certain wavelengths like they're tuned to the sounds that they need to hear um so that that is an interesting aspect as well um that the receiver is tuned to hear the things that are meaningful or see the things that are meaningful yeah and i think um kind of what ayala brought up the idea of animals umzelt so so trying to see things from their perspective like 
physically, like what can a hummingbird see? I mean, they can see way more colors than we can, way into the uh, UV spectrum while we can't. And so I guess thinking about it, that kind of, I don't know, informs us scientists, like how we should approach these questions, not only from like what we see, but what does a female hummingbird see when she sees a male with these bright colors flying around or making songs with his tail? And how does that like, I guess, inform our methods or how we interpret our results? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it is this this podcast episode is kind of inspiring in terms of kind of how we can approach understanding what it is like to be something else. Right. Because, I mean, philosophers have been thinking about this through time. Right. Like, what's it like to be a bat? There's like a paper by Uh, a philosopher named Nagel on that and he's like well you'll never know what it's like to be another thing even though we have scientific methods to like understand how they're sensing the world we don't know like what's necessarily meaningful like how they interpret those senses in like a meaningful way and I think that um, this thinking about it through dance and thinking about like how humans do that with like symbolic actions like dance moves or like costume and the ornateness of that and like what it looks like but also what it means like I think we can maybe get get an idea of like how other animals might assign meaning to these different sensory experiences that they like find salient or not you know yeah just you know thinking about different experimental designs like is it the brightness of this feather is it the shape or like you know how the male or female waves it around and to tie this back into dance too just thinking about what you mentioned not just the physical movement but also the music the costuming and how you know I would love to find out like kind of what meaning these dances have for different populations whether it's um, to tie back to diaspora like for Cambodians that have moved outside of Cambodia versus Cambodians still in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I I was thinking about um like gene flow, or I was thinking about like bottleneck effects, um, that, which is a concept in in evolutionary biology where, um, you know, you have this like native population like Cambodia, and then um you have like a few members sort of picked maybe not at random, maybe at random, that leave that population and go to a new place. And all of a sudden, you um, you don't have the same identity because it's now taken into a new context. Um, but also, um, you have this group that has the need to especially has this need to preserve um their culture because they're they're in such the minority um and so like the form that it takes in this new context is really interesting to think about um how do they do that right because a lot of times in evolution when that happens um you know these the group that left um now is so isolated from it and under different selective like forces that it evolves to be something different and something that does like reflect the the selective forces imposed on it in this new context you know yeah I guess like personally speaking as you know a member of a diaspora group like the idea of like what identity um as a Vietnamese American woman like what am I doing to preserve that part of my identity and like how does that compare to Vietnamese women who are in Vietnam and like kind of figuring out 
there are differences. Like, I certainly, while I can't speak Vietnamese, I definitely have an Americanized accent that my aunts and uncles still in Vietnam will point out every time we call. And it oh. kind of grinds my gears, but still. Um, or, like, you know, I can think of, you know, just Viet Glish. So, like, the combination of Vietnamese and English that my friends and I will use to kind of just go in and out of conversations. Fusion foods. I mean, have you seen a burrito by any chance? No. Okay, so it's this weird fusion of a burrito and pho. Oh my gosh. I've How? never had it, mostly because it just looks like a lot, but it's, I've seen pictures and it's like the noodles and the beef all wrapped up in a burrito, like a tortilla. Like mm-hmm. a burrito. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting thought. <laughs> yeah, so kind of, you know, thinking about it as. Or similarly to bird evolution, uh, like what I all mentioned with dialects and like how, you know, we have one little group that somehow seems slightly different from the rest mm-hmm. coming from a- another group. And then that kind of becomes its own thing. So who knows? Maybe mm-hmm. burritos might end up being some weird, <laughs> unique um, creation that mm-hmm. evolves further down the line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> centuries from now, who knows? Well, I mean, that, that that really highlights, I guess, like, just what happens when, like, uh, cultures do end up, like, coming into contact and blending and not being geographically isolated. And and that is something that, that Ryan touched on that I thought was interesting of just, like, sending the, sending the ambassadors to, like, go see, like, what it is to be Cambodian through these dances. And they, they put that on display, right? Like, it, it's almost like giving them, like, a sampler platter and be like, what, what do you want to do with this? Like, how, what, what kinds of weird food combinations could we make? Or, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like a way to show, like, this is what we have to offer. Um, like, can we collaborate? Like, I mean, that's one, one view of it. Um, but I, I also thought it was interesting what you were talking about with... Um, or just tying back what you're saying about how uh, when you speak Vietnamese, uh, your family members can tell right away that you aren't like same as them, right? This like this difference is so big uh, once you're in the culture, right? Like, um, but someone who doesn't speak Vietnamese would not be able to tell the difference, and I feel like that that goes back to the this idea um, that we were just talking about about like um, you know these. Uh, these small like differences like what Ryan said about about um dance like when you're really good at dance you can see the small differences right um but from the outside you can't see these small differences but from the inside these small differences are everything like and they're so they can be so big and what they mean various things about their identity and and whether like people are representing it correctly or not um so that that was an interesting yeah similarity yeah so, I don't know. Let me think of running out of steam right no, now. We're good. I just had a uh, well, Joshua? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anything from you? Uh, well, we're at uh, coming up on like 12 minutes. I mean, I'd like to break down. This almost feels like it would be like a cool, almost like uh, instead of at the end of the episode, maybe almost like a release like the following day or a few days later as like an additional, like sort of like post credit almost. Like, um. Mm-hmm. Wait, do you want to pause it and we talk about this? No, 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 because it's me. (laughs) I'm Harry the Hummingbird. I like to give my input. (laughs) That philosopher you mentioned who doesn't know what it means to be other species? Bumpkiss. (laughs) We're other species all the time. 
Also, we can't hum. I'm a great whistler, though. <laughs> Hummingbirds can speak for themselves. Hummingbirds can speak for us, as we can speak for all creatures. We're the most agile things in the sky. Take your military budget and put it towards nectar. I need nectar! This podcast was brought to you by SciComm at UCR. You can find out more about us at SciComm.UCR.edu. And special thanks to our producer, Joshua Rieger, our wonderful guests, and you listeners. We'll see you next time on our journey across Across the the Klein. Klein.